fair shake. HBO needs to fire you. You know about boxing. You ain't. If everybody leave the room, if everybody leave the room and me you stay there now, I would walk up. That's and you won't. That's why I see your talker. In, in this time, you know, it's, it's suicide. It's the same with Tony. Suicide. And I was never. I was never focused that it's way. Very, it's for, very for me, it was, it was never about being the best. I was happy being one of the best. I got, a lot, I got robbed of a gold medal in the Olympics, which really basically f***ed me off. So I had something to prove. When you got something to prove, it makes it, you a different fighter. In my prime, I spanked him. Yeah, yeah. How did he go be as equally talented as me? Are you serious? As easy as I beat him, I could have beat him while playing chuckles on the other side. That's how easy <laughs> that was. Uh, guys, welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where a 40-fight amateur novice with a manufactured Olympic gold medal genuinely thought he was going to outbox a 320-bout genuine Olympic gold medalist. You can't make it up, but welcome back to the podcast. And without much ado, let's get cracking. So I woke up to the news that Chris Eubank Jr. versus Anatoly Muratov is off. And you couldn't make it up. It's almost like... <laughs> It's like Hearns just sat there with effigies, right? Just poking needles into them going, you will not fight, you will not fight. That guy's determined, isn't he? To make sure Eubank never ascends to the top of the sport. And he's out there with his little voodoo dolls, you know, having a bit of fun, having a laugh and a joke. But in all seriousness, it's not a great start to the relationship between Sky Wasserman and Boxer. There are a number of things we'll touch on later, which are also potential worries, but this... Is disappointing because not only is Eubank Jr. The, the anchor for their proposition, he's also the most engaging British boxer we have. It's not even close. You will happily listen to a Eubank Jr. interview. You will happily listen to him talk. More importantly, you'd happily watch him fight. So to hear that this fight's off is somewhat disappointing. And there are fans who genuinely wanted to see Eubank Jr. There are fans who genuinely wanted to see a big name in British boxing, they've bought tickets accordingly. And now what you really have is a, like a Saturday fight night card, really. And that's not a bad thing because I guess the TV viewers won't have to pay for it, which is good. But in terms of that overall event, I think it takes some of the buzz away. And that's mitigated a bit by getting to watch David Avanesian versus Liam Taylor, which should be an entertaining fight. Um, I think the, the result's probably a foregone conclusion. But... You know, David Avanesian is never in a bad fight. So kudos. I mean, that's what I can say. It's kudos to them and good luck to them. But the Eubank Jr. thing is, it's concerning because if the fight is off, as is claimed due to medical concerns, my question becomes, well, when was this done? Like, did he leave Germany with these pre-existing concerns or... Is it that there's a misalignment between the medical standards in Germany and the United Kingdom? If that's the case, then that's a, it's a bit of a worry. Now, for context, people need to understand that the British board in general are very conservative in how they approve medicals. So they won't approve you if there are concerns. Like, if there are medical concerns around you, their default position is probably to say no. And a lot of boxers have have suffered as a result of this, even though they believe they, they are fit to continue. Guys that I know have been on the wrong end of this. Um, like I've seen guys you know, in the higher weight classes struggle with this as well. So the board is stuck because if something does go wrong, a la Nick Blackwell, 
they leave themselves liable. So what's the best way to defend yourself? You say anything suspicious, we're not going to touch. And so that hurts the fans. But the fact that there was no no backup or you couldn't reorder the card, would you really put Linus in with Eubank Jr.? Uh, why not, is my attitude. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I think if you told Linus eight, ten weeks ago you were fighting Eubank Jr. and he'd had to do all the build-up and the press and all of this, that might have been draining just because he hasn't been through that kind of process before. But if you're telling someone on the day, yeah, your opponent's changed, you're fighting Eubank Jr., I think it's different. And I think psychologically you're, you're better suited to doing that. And I'd, I'd feel the same about them pulling Jermaine Brown in to do that because Eubank weighed in, what, 163? And Jermaine weighed in at 166? And Jermaine doesn't reflate that much. So they're probably the same weight right now. So that fight could also work. And also it's the fact that you haven't had to do the build-up. But overall it's a mess. And these sorts of things shouldn't happen. There should have been a contingency plan somewhere. I think boxing needs to learn from this, that you can't run these kinds of risks. Either do the medicals far enough in advance that you can get someone in, or make sure that your guy is robust. And I don't think they've done either of those things here. And I'm going to put this down to, to the learnings, right? Because Matchroom was a pretty slick operation behind the scenes. You can criticize Eddie as much as you want. You can say this, you can say that. Matchroom were pretty slick behind the scenes. They had all their pro... It was all synced up, and that's a legacy of a family that have been in boxing for 30-plus years. What we have with Ben Shalom and Boxer, this is all new. Like, when, you, when you're around that environment, there are a lot of good people, but there aren't people with decades of boxing experience there. So I think you put this one in the learning, in the learning box, and hopefully they'll learn from this. But I am gutted that I don't get to see Eubank Jr. Hopefully we get to hear from him. I think the important thing is... You know, they use them as much as they can to to drive the engagement. And more importantly, I want to say this. If Roy doesn't have to be in the corner, can we get Roy Jones on commentary, please? But what I also wanted to say was, don't let this one thing detract from what's been a pretty good at, pretty good first attempt by Sky under their, under their new banner. There's a lot of stuff I've liked. And so visually, I like the new branding. I'm a big fan of it. Um, the white background with the with the blue and the red works for me. Um, I like some of the little touches they're doing. You know, really getting the cameras in and around everything and capturing as much content as they can, and then filtering that down into, you know, what do we think will engage the fans? So I like that. I've absolutely loved Roy Jones in the UK, uh, and I always go back to we should have had him here more often. Whatever it would have cost, we should have had him here more often for the big fights. Because this country shows out for the stars. Now, we know who the legends are, and we show out for them. We show, I think we show more love to Roy Jones per capita than in his home country. Maybe not his home state, but definitely in his home country. And it'll be the same love for Antonio Tava too, in my opinion. Those sorts of guys who we know are legends, Hall of Famers, get the love they deserve. So it was fantastic seeing Roy in Stonebridge, in and around the youngsters there, working with those amateurs, you know, giving them little tidbits. And just for them to be around a guy like Roy Jones Jr., who I actually met at the weigh-in as well, and it's hard not to be starstruck by Roy. But he's so, he's so grounded with it. Like, for him, it's just like, yeah, I'm happy being around the fans, I'm happy talking to people, I'm happy talking boxing. And a lot of people had fantastic interactions with him. 
I think it's been the same with all the fighters. Everyone's been really approachable. Now, I don't know if this is a new model. So let's see what happens when you go to Newcastle. Are you going to have your public workouts in a local gym? Like, are you going to have it out of, no, Berkeley's too far, but whatever that Forest Green is it? Is it Forest Green? I can't remember where Lewis Ritson used to train. But let's see if you can have it at those local clubs. And let's start doing that. I think that's really important to show that connection between the grassroots and what Sky are doing now. Because I think with Matchroom, it went a bit too far the other way. So you had the public workouts in you know, hotels, or you had them in Covent Garden. Actually, that one was pretty good. But I'd like to see a bit more of a connection between the grassroots and what's happening at the top end of the sport. I think that's really, really important. It helps with the visibility of the amateur side. It helps with the visibility of those clubs and their brands. And so that can only help the sport in the long run, in my opinion. So I've, I've liked a lot of those things. The, like I said, the accessibility has been good. The content's kind of been what we expect. I don't think there's been anything revolutionary in that sense. But I've also enjoyed seeing new faces. I think that's the important thing. And it, we get to see these new faces, new videographers, new photographers, new people, as well as the old. So it was nice to catch up with you know, guys like Adam Smith and so forth. All that stuff is good. I think it's been a good fight week and I don't want that to be lost in all of the thing about Eubank not boxing in the main event. So let's remember they've done a lot of good things. And I thought where the way in was was good. It wasn't overblown, but it wasn't, it didn't feel rickety either. It felt, it felt like a way in should, a chance for everyone to just relax, catch up and you know speak informally. So that was really, really good. So massive pass on the back for for what they're trying to do. I think they just need to tighten up the execution and hopefully they can do that. But what I will say about the card is I think it's a good card. And it's, it's a card of, I call this like, it's a card of hope. Because when I look down the list of people on that card, it, it, it's like a, a walk down memory lane in terms of like the New Age Boxing Podcast where the first time a lot of fans heard these names was on the New Age so I go down that list, I talk about guys like Jermaine Brown. And you all remember, in my early episodes, that was just after Jermaine had done the ABA, so that would have been 2016. And I was telling you the, the crazy story of Fitzroy Lodge putting out three guys at 75 kilos. Jermaine Constantine Williams, Zach Chelly, and Jermaine Brown. Now, I wasn't close to the detail at the time, but if you had said to me, who would you put forward? I'd have put Jermaine Brown forward. Like, being consistent to, to the Lodge philosophy, you do one of two things. You'd either commit to Jermaine Brown and then everyone would kind of get around him to get him over the line and then you'd know who'd be doing it the year after. Or you just go, okay, I'm going to put the two Jermaines in because they've been most loyal to the club and they've been there longer and then they can box it out. And I think they would have been okay with that, although it can get tense in the club sometimes and that's where you have to insert some some guidance. But... You know, Jermaine did well out of it. I think had he been in any other region, Jermaine would have been a quarter finalist that year, maybe even a semi finalist, because you know he he's a guy that boxes himself into form. I think he's class. I think he's matured fantastically well, and I'm hoping for a good performance because otherwise I'm gonna have egg on my face. Another name championed on the New Age Boxing Podcast is Lionel Sadofia, and that's why I got to tip my hat off to Martin because Martin was the guy who said to me. I'm confident this guy will be a British champion and more. And I remember I'd look at Martin and go, how are you so sure? 
And I said, he's, he's based out of Luton, so not a big market, not a hotbed of talent. And I was cynical and I've sort of been won over over the years. And I'm now quite a big Liners fan. I like him as a person. I like him as a boxer and I want him to go all the way. So that one, whenever you see Liners blow up, you got to give that one to Theobald. And he, he's, he's been on that train. Like he might have even built the train, although that's probably Andy White's gig. But yeah, you know, that's another name that's been on there. You can find the episodes where I talk about Ebony Jones. And there's someone I've known since she was 13. And she was killing it then. And I just said, she's coming. Um, Mikel Lowell to a lesser extent, but there's another guy that was on the radar. Richard Reakpour, someone we raised before he turned over. So I take great pride in that. In that having been involved in these journeys from, mostly from the amateur days up to now. So the card for me is that kind of, okay, now you've, you've done everything. You've had your finishing school. Now you guys are, you're the real deal. You're, you're certified professionals. You can include David Evanestian as well. Like for the small hall guys, we remember when he was grafting his way up this ladder and you had Neil Marsh and Carl Greaves and so forth telling us this guy could be a world champion one day. And we just laughed. But who's laughing now? You know, he might effectively be the second biggest name on this Skyboxer roster. And as I keep saying, I think the art of a really good podcast is the ability to to talk about what's happened in the past, what's happening in the present, and give you a view of what's coming in the future. And I think whether it's me or my own, or it's me, Martin, and Andy, we've always been able to do that. And the reason we've always been able to do that is we really enjoy the sport, number one. And number two, we've always been focused on giving the audience what they need. Like, it's always been an audience-first approach, you know, we all have egos to an extent, but we realize that longevity and winning the love of the fans, and I repeat that, winning the love of the fans can only come when you put the fans first. So I'm looking forward to seeing all of the guys. I'm, I'm quite intrigued to see Joe Pigford. I want to see how good Joe is because you look at his record and there's a lot of knockouts and stoppages and you think he can really go, but his ranking doesn't seem to reflect his, his record. And... If you look at the division at 154, there are some interesting names that we'd like to see him get in amongst. Because it, really, he came to fame by, by stopping Aaron Morgan. And at a time when Aaron had the whole Islington, he had a little London buzz about him, and Joe kind of dealt with that. And now Joe's training out of, I think it's SK4, with a good friend of mine, Kev Thornley, uh, Steve Bendel, who we've talked about before. You know, Steve Bendel was, he was like Ryan Rhodes before Ryan Rhodes. So he was this amateur standout who people expected to go to the Olympics in 1996. And I think he was on that path and he was getting the opportunities. Did he box for Triumph out of Coventry? And, uh, you know, so this is a time when, you know, the, the Midlands lot had quite a stranglehold over things. So, he, you know, he had those sorts of guys banging the drum. The Woodalls and the McCrackens were trumpeting the Midlands boxing. But I think he boxed Wayne Alexander, and the problem with boxing Wayne Alexander is Wayne could really, really hit. It wasn't finesse and it wasn't super skillful. But when Wayne Alexander hit you, you fell over. Like You see Wayne now, he, he does a lot of white-collar refing. And he's active on social media. He's actually quite a, quite a funny guy to follow. Wayne Alexander's a class act, but he could punch. For a welterweight, he could absolutely punch. And I think Steve Bendel discovered that. And then... He kind of never re rediscovered that momentum in his career. 
But he's always been in and around that South Coast scene and he's an important figurehead there. So if you ever see Steve Bendel out and about, and I, and I say this to boxing fans, you've got to know the guys who help set the platform. So for me, guys like Steve Bendel, when you see them, you've got to shake their hand and say, mate, how are you, you right? You know, just acknowledging that you're one of the guys in the sport. You know, you, you have to do that. And so I'm interested to see what Joe does. I'd like to see... I'd like to see him progress and do well. Obviously, I wish Keb all the best. And I wish those guys all the best because the more places we can get boxing happening, because the South Coast, you know, you've got him, you've got Michael McKinson. You know, we want to get, get boxing booming everywhere. So we've got more interesting places to go to shows. Um, I don't know if anyone's going up to, to Plymouth for the, for the Brad Pauls fight. Listen, I, still got, I think I still got a hotel room reserved. In case Martin rings me up and says, mate, I'm going to the Brad Paul's fight. But I think he'll, he'll have Irish dancing on that weekend, I'm sure. But a name I'm going to be intrigued to see is Harvey Horn. So Harvey is with Mark and Jimmy Tibbs now. And I think he's had a lot of false starts in his career. It's a touch of the Lucian Reed in terms of career where the talent's not in question. But I think the decision making, the lifestyle, the things that you need to really excel as a pro... I don't think have necessarily been there with Harvey Horn. And I think it's kind of make or break now. If it doesn't work for Harvey on this platform, I don't think it will. And I'd like it to work for Harvey Horn because, like I said, here are guys who came up the proper way. They did their time in the AMs. You know, they, they know the values. I mean, Harvey was, what, out of Repton? So they know the values. And, and when people understand the values that come with boxing, what you know is they're not going to drop the ball. The boxers who come up the right way rarely drop the ball. Some of the other ones, well, you know, they don't understand the rules, so sometimes they act outside themselves and it can cause problems. I also just want to pause for a second. And it's, I think this year is more poignant than others. And I really want to pay tribute to Adam Martin. And a lot of guys won't know who Adam is, and I fully understand that. So, oh my God, why is he talking about this guy? So... I've known Adam since the mid-2000s, when I first started showing up at the Lodge. And, you know, how do you put it? The Lodge is a fantastic club and it has a great legacy in the sport. It's, it's splintered and fragmented at the moment. And hopefully over time we'll all come back together. But this year is the 10th year since we lost Mick Carney, who was instrumental in a lot of what we all went on to become in the sport. And so when I'm able to watch Jermaine Brown being trained by Mick Gilfoyle and Adam Martin, and I go, right, there are three guys with Lodge in their blood. And I go, this is what Mick would have wanted. To see him, to see guys like Eddie Lamb, and to see guys like Nigel Travis up in Manchester doing their bit. And then you turn your TV on and you see Johnny Harris, or you see Jack Rowan. I mean, you see all of these guys... And you go, what a great place to be from. And then even when I catch up with guys like Javan Young, and I see Javan Young imparting his knowledge, experience, and wisdom to the youngsters, and I say, that club's been a force for good in a way that not many people understand unless they're really in the sport. So when I saw Adam yesterday with Mick and Jermaine, I just said, wow. You're working out of Adam Booth's gym, you're doing this, you're doing that. And it's been a hell of a journey because I know there were times where Adam was like, I don't know if this is going to work for me. And this is a bit of boxing that people don't get to see. It's those points where there's the doubt. It's like, why am I doing this? And Adam just kept chipping away. He kept believing, kept grafting. 
And what I hope now is people will see Jermaine Box and they'll go, actually, Adam Martin is a guy that I can go and train with. I feel the same about Roy Connor too. Roy, Eddie, everyone. You know, look at these guys. They're, they're from the right stock. If you're looking for a good trainer who's going to get you fundamentally sound, because really that's what you need to be world level. You need solid fundamentals, amazing fundamentals. You go to those guys. Stop going to these guys that look good on Instagram. Stop going to these guys that have their Instagram buzz, coach so-and-so, coach so-and-so, their little channel and their fake followers and their fake likes. Stop doing it. Stop hopping between gyms thinking that going to seven gyms is seven times better than going to one gym. You pick guys like Adam, guys like Mick, who have no fluff, no, no agendas. They just want to create the best boxers they can. So I'm happy to see Adam gets his chance to shine on TV finally. It's well-deserved. And listen, every amateur trainer thinks they can train professionals and they all run off and get their licenses. It's not that easy. You know? So kudos to them. And I'm, I'm genuinely, genuinely proud. Like, those moments make me proud to be part of Fitzroy Lodge. And like, especially this, as we hit, hit the 10th anniversary of Mick's passing, that's a good news story. And I know that if Mick was around now, he'd smile and he'd go, yeah. Yeah, I'm happy. So yeah, that's, I am, I'm happy for him. Um, and I, I, you get kind of emotional because I was also, you know, I was, I was at the weigh-in yesterday and just being at the weigh-in, I got to catch up with guys like John Edwards out of Guildford and he's working with Ebony Jones at the moment, but I know him from, you know, my guys have fought his guys. You know, I've taken losses, you know, against Chez, but I've taken wins against Naylor Ball. So, I mean, it's nice to see guys like that. They're nice to see, like I said, Kev Thorne and Lee. Um, and then just in a wider sense, like just talking about the boxing community, that just being able to spend some time with, with Dumps, you know, he's still supporting Linus, which I really, really respect. I mean, that's, that's one of those, man, like, for life. You know what I mean? That's a real bond there, and I, I really, really respect that. You know, you get to spend time with... Look, I'm going to shout out Karina Hercock, because in the beginning, I used to give her a stick, because I didn't understand. But, look, we're five years into this, and she's still showing up to shows. She's driving down from South Yorkshire. She's getting a hotel set up, tickets, all of this, buying the merchandise, buying the memorabilia. And I say she's a super fan, not in a derogatory sense, but in the sense that boxers would love more fans like Karina. So massive respect to her. Um, who else did we see? Who else did Bumper Jones? I met Roy Jones, man. I got to shake Roy's hand, which might be the second biggest hand after Eubank Seniors. Actually, no, third to Lennox. Sorry. But pound for pound, Roy might have the biggest hands in the world. And what an amazing human being. Not as tall as I thought, but he was eight foot tall in my mind, and I was just trying not to mark out and act like a complete fanboy. But the more times we get Roy here, the better. I'd love to just get half an hour with Roy and pick his brain. I mean, look, I even enjoyed seeing Mark and Jimmy Tibbs. You know, I think those two are legends. Got a lot of time for the Tibbs family. Um, you know, what, what can you say that they haven't done? They've done everything and they've got stories for days. So it's always good to see Jim. And Jim still looks like he loves the game. You know, nice to see guys like, you know, Johnny Nelson, Adam Smith, Uma IFL, Uma, as people call him. What a lovely young man he is. And I've, I think I've said this for a while. He's the bad cop to Coogan's good cop. And IFL need Uma because he'll always ask that, that kind of awkward question. It's like a left hook to the liver, isn't it? Where he'll, he'll lull you into that kind of comfort and then he'll hit you with it. But 
good kid maturing nicely. Um, I think he has a career beyond IFL and wherever he chooses to go will be entirely up to him. Good to see he's over the, the fake tweet scandal and he's learned from that. And it just, when you go to weigh-ins like that, where it's not overblown like a Joshua weigh-in, it's, it's people you've known for years. It's just a nice little reunion. Don Charles was there as well. It was nice to see him. You know, some other guys, you know, Angel Fernandez was there. We didn't get to talk. I can't say why, but hopefully, you know, it's nothing personal because I've never really dragged him down, have I? But just an amazing bunch of people at this venue, man. Um, just, that's what boxing should be, I think. You need that right mix of Hollywood, but also that, that kind of mix of non-Hollywood stuff. But a guy I absolutely have to shout out and, you know, can't, can't, can't praise him highly enough for just being a good guy as well. And if I get his name wrong, apologies. So, so feel free to pull me up. Ollie Brady. So Ollie Brady's a photographer. I think he's based out of Manchester or Oldham. That's all the same to me, man. It's the North. So all the really cool pictures you see in Gallagher's gym, like any of those pictures with Joe, with Tasha, with Callum Johnson, with even now Charlie Edwards, all of those really good pictures, they're Ollie Brady. And so he's now working with Boxer. I think he's worked with them before. And you know, it was finally good to meet him. I know he listens to the podcast. It was fantastic to meet him finally. I didn't want to interrupt him because he was busy. He was actually working. So we couldn't have an in-depth chat. But... Ollie, I promise you, next time you're down, when you've got some free time, we'll catch up properly, okay? Uh, good guy. Thoroughly good guy. And I think the whole box a lot, everyone was just really good. So I can't, I can't speak highly enough of my experience this week. You know, long may it continue, because this is my sort of boxing. You know, you've got that, like I said, the right mix of the guys who help build the future stars. And then you've got the existing stars as well, who some of these guys help build as well. No, so I think that broadly covers where we are with Sky and Boxer. And I just want to switch gears quickly and probably touch on something a bit more personal to me, but still boxing-related, though. And I was, I was grateful to be invited to the memorial service for, for Frank Beckles, Frankie B, Pro B's, uh, Pep Talk Frankie, however you want to call him. Everyone in boxing knows him under at least 15 different names, but... We lost Frank Beckles last week, and we lost him far too early, 41 years old. And he got, the, he got the mention on the Joshua Show, and I know a lot of people are wondering, who is he and why was he so important? So you've got to go back a few years. So when the whole podcast thing was, it was an uncertain art form. Like I remember back in the days, you know, at New Age, where we were, we were happy just crossing 300 spins on SoundCloud. And people were still laughing at the idea of a podcast. Frampton couldn't understand what the hell it was. And I think his response to me was, you know, why are you talking about boxing? Shouldn't you leave that to the boxers? It's like, it's no, mate, it's about being entertained. So we were doing our thing at New Age and, like, you know, the Pep Talk guys were doing their thing. So it wasn't the Pep Talk, bo Pep Talk boys. And why, why it's really important to me, well, there's two reasons. One, I was invited to do a few episodes. I don't know how many I did. Maybe I did six, maybe I did eight. And through them, I got to meet Bo, who does Truth and Facts Boxing. And I did about four episodes with him. And um, they were just a lot of fun. 
and they were the the more innocent days. I think this happens in every scene, right? There's a scene where there's the mindset is we're all in it together because we're all striving to get somewhere. And I think over time, some people make it, some people don't make it. It pulls you in different directions and you're no longer as united. And that's the hurtful part. It's the same in boxing as well. When you all start off and you're training your amateurs and you're like, look, I just like one tournament win. Okay? Then you get five or six tournament wins in and you start to build a profile. Some of your peers get jealous. Some congratulate you. But what happens over time is you just pull in different directions and you end up forming really small, tight groups of friends. And that's how you get through these things. And it was crazy because I used to really enjoy doing my pep talk episodes. I think I was just brought on to, to kick the chessboard up in the air every so often. Because editorially, I liked what they did. The, the pep talk guys held a very central line on most things. So, you know, they, they didn't court controversy, but they let their guests do it. And I thought that worked. And then over time, it sort of transitioned into some of the, the up close and personal interviews, which I thought were really good. And I, you know, I used to watch them. But just through the pep talk boys, I remember because like, they ne the episodes never started on time for a start. None of them ever started on time. So you'd get like a, a nine o'clock Wednesday invitation and the thing wouldn't start recording till half past. Now I'm quite punctual. So I'd end up being on there and you'd have like a half hour off the record chat. I had a few of those with, for example, Angela Hebden, who some of you know, Troops, when we're doing one on football, I did it with Troops. And there are a few other guys. Uh, Paul Greenidge, who I think either went to school with Joshua or they played county football together. And shouts out to, to Paul Greenidge. I don't know if he still boxes. And there were loads of people I met through doing the pep talk thing. And like we used to see each other at York Hall and stuff and just have a chat. And we always talked about kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll get you back on. We'll get you back on. Which never happened. And I didn't take it personally because I just said, look, life gets in the way. But it wasn't until September that me and Frankie started like messaging and talking a bit more frequently. I don't even know why. And I remember we were talking, I just said, mate, I'm proud of how consistent you've been like every week. You know what I mean? Pep talk, you're, you're there. Wherever there's something happening, you're there. And, and I said to him, everyone I speak to about you, man, not a bad word is said. And I said, do you know how rare that is in boxing? And we talked. And then I think, the last thing we said to each other was, we're definitely going to make something happen before the end of the year. And that was about a week and a half before he passed away. He was a really good man. Uh, and hearing the, the family tributes from all around the world, and they didn't even touch on boxing until right at the end. And you realized he was a good man who gave a lot to his, to his wife and his kids and his family and his friends, you know, his day ones, he gave a lot to them. But he was also the life and soul of the party. So from me personally, from this podcast, Frank Beckles, we salute you. May you forever rest in peace. Well, I think it's probably right we talk about Sandy Ryan's performance yesterday. Um, in, in a women's division that doesn't give us many knockouts, uh, what Sandy Ryan did yesterday was frightening. It, it takes a special sort of left hook to the body for someone's legs to kick up off the ground like that. That was absolutely insane. But 
nothing short of what we expect from Sandy Ryan. I've, I've thought Sandy Ryan was, was one of the prototypes for, for female boxing. Just strong. Like, you know, she went through a phase where I think she tried to be a bit slicker than she was, but I'm like, you're Dave Rocky Ryan's system. And like, I have a feeling the apple won't fall far from that tree. And so it's proving where she's just a, just a ferocious body puncher, just technically sound, that raw aggression, you could hear it in every sound that she made. And I'm happy for it because she's one of the ones I want to see cross over. And, you know, you start talking about, could she fight McCaskill? I mean, could she dominate a welterweight? Could she move up to light middle? All of these things. She's a class act and Eddie will do well to hang on to her and he'll do really well to hang on to Ellie Scottney as well. Where, God, I can finally talk about her training with Shane McGuigan. Now, I haven't asked too many questions. But what I will say is this. If you listen to me often enough, I've said for a while, Adam Booth is a hoax. As a trainer, he's a hoax. Like, he's never been good. Never. There's nothing in Adam Booth where he's taken someone who shouldn't have been a champion and made them a champion. David Hayes should have been a champion. Some would even argue David underachieved for his career and his talent. Some would argue George underachieved for his talent and his power. We know the back injuries that David sustained. We know the back injuries that Ryan Burnett sustained. Adam Booth is a hoax. Now, this isn't something I need to speak to Ellie about. She's her own woman, but I say this in my own guise. The guy's a hoax, and he hid behind that kind of mysterious media personality just to hide the fact that he ain't really that good. But he's grifted a whole damn career out of just saying things that people can already figure out for themselves just in a slightly different way. That's what Adam Booth is. Um... Some people just say he's still a massage therapist who knows a little bit about boxing. Maybe. I don't want to go that far. You know, some people say he's just a sports scientist who was just ahead of the curve in that sense. And there's an argument for that. But I'd never recommend a fighter joins Adam Booth. Just, I don't think there's anything there. I think there are better trainers in this country that don't have the profile. And I wish boxing fans would stop believing you're a good trainer if you come off well on BT Sport or Sky Sports, that doesn't make you a good trainer. No. It's Saturday today, and I can put this challenge out. Any boxer that's been trained by Adam Booth this week, feel free to message me. Any boxer who's had training contact time with Adam Booth, feel free to contact me. And I say that because if I did the same for Tony Sims, everyone would tell me. Tony's in the gym training people. Mark Tibbs is in the gym training people. Where's Adam? Adam's trying to say, give me my 20 grand before you give the fighter 50 grand. Nah, he's, he's a myth. He's a hoax. And I wish the public would call him out more on being a hoax. You guys are there just, just eating out this guy's backside. He's a hoax. He, he, look, and I know Caldwell's getting dragged over the coals right now, but Caldwell trains his guys. Like Caldwell's not a hoax. You may not agree with how he trains people 100%, but he's not a hoax. He puts the work in. Booth is a hoax. Sucks you in. Why do you think Joe Joyce isn't there? Why do you think Eubank Jr. is not there? He's a hoax. And talented people figure this out pretty quickly. But he's a hoax. I'm, I'm personally happy Ellie's with Shane McGuigan. I think that environment will suit her better. I think Shane is a good trainer. He's hands-on and he really cares about his fighters. That is why he's selective about who he commits to training. 
So kudos to him because he's building up a hell of a gym there. You know, and I'm hoping that this is a period of stability for Shane because he's, just since I've known him, there's Battersea, then there was Hayes' gym, and there was George's gym, then there was a place in Wandsworth, then there was a place in Kent, and now it's like East London. And I just wish the guy all the best because if nothing else, he's putting it in himself. Like he's not delegating, he's not ducking. He puts that work in himself with guys like Dubois, Lawrence Acoli, guys like, you know, or even the little guys, like even like L and Caroline Dubois, he does work with everyone. So kudos to him. Uh, his relationship with Rob Tevitt, don't necessarily agree with that. But then that was my idea. People forget that. That was my idea. And he took it and ran with it, but, you know, people do what they do. But overall, I'd like to see Ellie kick on now. And I'd like to see Ellie be a bit more selfish with her development and not trust it to other people. Uh, that's something I've shared with her privately as well, so I don't mind saying it publicly. Like, sometimes as a boxer, you've just got to grab your career by the neck and say, I'm dragging this thing to where I want it to go. And people either come with me or they get replaced. And she's, she's got the talent and the drive to do all of that. I, like I keep saying, she's her and Sandy Ryan are the kind of boxing that will take female boxing over the top. So on the subject of female boxing, I think someone asked Clarissa Shields if she'd fight on a Jay Paul undercard. And she gave one of the most ignorant answers I can think of, where she was like, why would I fight on his undercard? Who the hell is Jake Paul? And then she proceeded to remind us that she's a two-time Olympic gold medalist, uh, I don't know how many division world champion. And so she should never fight on his undercard. And I just paused for a second and I said to myself, let's really unpick this, just so we're absolutely clear. When you look at female sports in general and you list the greatest female sportswomen you can think of, how many of them weigh 75 kilograms in competition mode? So let's just, let's just take sprinting, right? Shelly Ann Fraser-Price will weigh about 60 to 63 kilograms. Dina Asher-Smith will be about 60 to 63 as well. You start looking at the pole vaulters, you're down into the 50s. The distance runners down into the 50s. Your tennis players are somewhere in the 50s and low 60s as well. Apart from Serena, who's about uh, probably 74. So she's one of the outliers, as is Venus, who's about 71. But I say that to say the point that to box at 75 kilos, that the available pool of female sporting talent isn't there. So you can be a two-time gold medalist because there aren't that many people, right? And I'm not saying that to, to denigrate it. I'm saying have a sense of perspective. Nicola Adams is a two-time Olympic gold medalist, and I think her two gold medals are probably harder to win than Clarissa Shields. Estelle Yoko Mosley won gold, was it? 2016 at 60 kilo. Kelly Harrington won it this year at 60 kilo. And Katie Taylor won it in 2012 at 60 kilo. They're the most legit gold medals because that's the sweet spot for female athletic prowess right now. And in two or three generations, that might move up five kilos. But that 60 kilo one, especially when you're boiling down, is an impressive win. So yes, she, she, you know, for her to say she's the greatest woman, she hasn't fought that many great women, unlike Katie Taylor, who has. Um, Kelly Harrington to win a gold medal has. Estelle Yoko Mosley to win hers. She has. And all those divisions she talks about unifying, like I said, they're not the, they're not the talent-rich divisions. 
So when she says she's the number one boxer on the planet, she's not. And she hasn't even fought her most natural rival yet. So we don't even know if she's number one for the bigger ladies. We don't know. And I'm not saying that to say Clarissa Shields is nobody. I'm just saying there's a lot she has to do to convince the boxing public that she is who she tells us she is. And so her fighting on the Jake Paul undercard economically would make sense because I know they tried to do their own pay-per-view and it tanked. I don't even think it broke even. That's why you haven't seen it happen again. And that's why she's gone to MMA. She had to go to MMA to get that check. And those MMA checks are not good. Right? Not many MMA fighters make six figures per fight. So that lets you know what her earning power is. And that's why she's there begging for that Savannah Marshall fight, because that's the one that's going to make her money. And over the years, I've become less and less of a Clarissa Shields fan, just because I find her personality pretty toxic, and I find that whoever, is it Salita, who's behind her, doesn't seem to have the common sense to sit her down and go, you've got to do this differently. You're messing up the money right now. People will tune in to watch Savannah Marshall Clarissa Shields and pray that Savannah Marshall stops her. That's so unfair because I think Clarissa's done so much that that shouldn't be what people look for in her. But she's managed to alienate so many people in the boxing community, male and female. And I wish someone would just have a word with her and say, look, do it properly. Because her level of ignorance doesn't do anything for the female sport. You wouldn't want her as an ambassador, especially when you compare her to Layla Ali and how Layla Ali helped elevate female boxing. So what's also been interesting this week is we've got to see the, the match from behind the scenes content, right? Surrounding the, the Joshua Usyk fight. And I'm none the wiser, from being brutally honest with you, I am none the wiser about what the hell happened in that camp. So all I can do is share with you guys what I know and offer some kind of insight and some conclusions. But why would you, at the end of a fight, say to your opponent, are we going to do this again? I know how to beat you. It's like, no, you had 12 rounds to show you know how to beat Usyk. So... What the hell happened there? Like, this is when you realize that this camp's not synced up because they've known for how many years. Once Usyk won that WBO title and said, I have aspirations to box at heavyweight, you knew at some point your paths would have to cross. So you've had three years to understand what Usyk does. And therefore, three years, at least three, might be, yeah, to, to know how you beat Usyk. So to say after 12 rounds, I now know how to beat you. It felt like he was talking to the camera. If you see what I mean. It's a, you know, like he was playing up to the camera and he understood that he had to say the right thing in front of the camera. I don't believe for one second Joshua has a clue how to beat Usyk. Because if he did, he would have done it. He only has two options, right? He can do what he tried to do before, which is outbox him, or go back to old, aggressive heavy swinging Joshua, which will mean you get counted, you get picked off. And as Usyk showed in the 12th round, he can hurt Anthony Joshua. So I don't understand what the play is here, number one. Number two, I think with a week's reflection, we should all kind of ease off Rob McCracken. And there's a simple reason why. 
If you look at McCracken's legacy as a trainer, if you really break it down, his fighters mostly come out in a similar way. The, so the other bizarre element, and I had to look back at this one, and it was the attitude they had to McCracken going to Tokyo. And, you know, you're looking at that going, you're just nonchalantly brushing this off like, well, either McCracken is an important part of the team or he's not. If McCracken is an important part of the team, and I'd assume he is because he's the only guy who's experienced in world title fights, why would you happily let him go to Japan? Unless you wanted to work with other people and work on other things. And I think that's what McCracken suspected. You know, because it would have been easier for McCracken to delegate the GB stuff than the Joshua stuff. Because he's less hands-on with the GB stuff and he's more hands-on with the Joshua stuff. Yet he, he elected to go to Japan. And that tells me that there was something not right in the camp. And it tells me that, and this is corroborated by people who have been close to it, there's, a, there's an ideological power struggle here. And the main themes of it seem to be, and I think this was kind of exemplified in the fight and the press conference after. There's an acceptance that McCracken doesn't teach defense. And you've seen that with the people he's trained before Joshua. He doesn't teach defense. And people say, why is that? If I remember correctly, McCracken came to boxing quite late. So maybe 18, 19 is when he started. So he never had that, that deep body of experience of working different defensive styles and having to adapt his own. So he's not really a defense first fighter. McCracken is a strength and fitness guy. And if, that, if he hasn't got that over you, he'll probably lose. And that's why he lost to Eastman. That's why he lost when he fought for the WBC world title. Because that's what that's essentially McCracken. McCracken's a guy that needs to be fit and strong and active. There's no real subtleties in teaching defense. And so the other side of the camp was saying, we need to teach you how to defend yourself. Right? We've got to teach you how to defend and how to turn defense into attack. Which, if you say that often enough to Joshua, he'll believe you because it's logical. But McCracken also understands, you start making those kinds of changes, you take away from what they'd created before before the, the second Ruiz fight, which is a guy who was basically out to get stoppages. Like, the notion of Joshua conducting a boxing masterclass is ridiculous. It's like a fish riding a bicycle, as they say. So you've got this power struggle within Team Joshua where there are two main voices that don't agree. and I think one is Joby and one is Rob. And people say, well, what does Angel do in all of this? Angel, from what I understand, Angel just does his job. Right? Whatever you ask him to do, he does. He's not there for the politics. It's, it's more around, you know, because Joby's quite vocal and he has a different approach to Rob. Rob's quite understated and Rob just says, if we get all the, the building blocks in place, we should win. Joby's all this, you know, that kind, of, that kind of fake psychology stuff. You know, when you meet these Americans and they're fake gurus because they've read a few books that you haven't read and they just quote those books and so you think they're geniuses. He's a bit like that from what I can see on the outside looking in. And that can be seductive to someone who's not well read themselves. And you can bombard them and bamboozle people with these notions of, well, look at this Cuban, look at how he did it. Yeah, you can do that. Why can't you do that? Yeah, yeah, you, get, you become a cheerleader. 
And as I said in my previous episodes, that's what Joshua essentially became. Well, he surrounded himself with cheerleaders. You know, look at the next picture you see of Team Joshua and you tell me how many died in the war boxing people there are in that picture. And then go back to his early days when he was surrounded by guys like Tony Sims and Peter Sims and so forth. He was around real boxing people. And now it, it's, it's like the emperor's new clothes. People are telling him he's the greatest thing since sliced bread and he can do anything he wants to do. No one can stop him. Nothing can stop him. Apart from Usyk, clearly. And so when you go into this next fight, what you can accept is it can't be the same process again. Right? And so someone's got to go. I don't know who that is. Does McCracken say this isn't worth the money? And then just say to Joshua, it's my way or the highway? Maybe. Does Joshua actually say, do you know what? I trust Joby and Angel more than I trust you. I don't know. I don't think that can be true because of the bond that AJ and Rob have. But something has to change because what's for certain is Joshua will never outbox Usyk. Never. Could he blast him out of it? Potentially. But it's high risk as well, as Ruiz showed. So what do you do if you're Joshua? Who do you trust? Because that's going to determine how the next fight goes. You can't have three trainers where one sees it one way, one sees it the other way, and one's neutral. Because like, your team's not pulling in the same direction. Now, I, I sit and I watch these scenarios and I say, could I help Joshua? Of course I could. But every trainer believes they could help Joshua. Give us two months with Anthony, Joshua will give you a new man. That's what we all say, right? Because we're supposed to say that. I, I genuinely don't think the guy can be fixed. Like, I think when you get to a certain level of success and delusion, you can't come back from that. And watching the Usyk fight back, I don't know what he could do differently. And here's why I say this is important. You can't assume that Alexander Usyk is just a static model of boxing. Like he only boxes one way. If Joshua changes, Usyk will change. And you're right back at square one. So you've got to be constantly changing against Usyk. Go from one, one approach to another, to another, to another. Keep him guessing. But at the same time, never allow him to get his confidence up. There are loads of things you could do. And we all want to, like I said, we bang the drum and say, oh, I could help him. <sighs> could I really? I could. But at what cost? Because I'm quite dictatorial in that sense. You know, I, I need to get things cracking my way. But I don't think Usyk is that special. And then cue all the people tweeting me going, Terry, you're crazy. I don't think Usyk's that special. And I, I agree with Johnny Nelson. Am I the only one who understood what Johnny Nelson meant when he said Usyk is an average Southpaw? Okay, so what do you mean by that? So when I look at Southpaws, right? Just Southpaws, I'm going to go off the top of my head. Pacquiao, ferocious, intense. Rewrote what was possible as a Southpaw, by the way. And God bless him in retirement. I should do an episode on Pacquiao. Pacquiao rewrote the rules on being a southpaw. Winky Wright, super conventional southpaw, but freakishly good defense because he had really long arms, really long forearms, actually. And seemed able to catch every shot on there. But then when you talk about exceptional southpaws, where you're talking about the pyrotechnics, the boxer tricks, you're talking about guys like Pernell Whitaker. So if you benchmark Usyk against Pernell Whitaker, not even close. I'd put Lomachenko in that kind of 
Pernell Whitaker bracket. Maybe not above him, probably below him, but in that bracket. And Usyk's not at that level. So paradoxically, I'd even put Joe Calzaghe in that kind of Southpaw freak category with Pacquiao for the insane work rate and the creativity. I know I get criticized because people say Terry doesn't like white fighters. Not true. I think Calzaghe was a hell of a talent as a Southpaw. Um, who else was a freak as a Southpaw? Ivan Calderon for his defensive skills. Definitely a freak as a Southpaw. Sergio Martinez for being a Southpaw who went the wrong way. So all of these guys are kind of freaks. Usyk's quite conventional as a Southpaw. What makes him unique is the pace he sets. So I put him in that kind of Hagler category of just a fundamentally sound Southpaw who is so intense and so strong that he just breaks you down eventually, he breaks your will down. So I understand what Johnny Nelson meant when he said Usyk is an average Southpaw, not in terms of achievements or ability, but in terms of what he does in the ring from a technical perspective. It's not revolutionary. Whereas Calzaghe was, just for the sheer punch volume at, at the weight class. Whitaker was, in the same way Calderon was, for their ability to, to evade everything. Uh, Martinez was for, actually, like I said, being a softball who went the wrong way. And then like Pacquiao, for that level of intensity that he could bring. All these guys are unique. Well, even Paul Smith for being that big guy at that weight class. And so benchmarked against that, Usyk's quite ordinary as a southpaw. That doesn't mean he's not a great fighter, because he is. But he can be beaten. And Joshua has to find that way. And you've just got to put your career on the line and say, I can't just beat this guy, I have to take him out. Because I have to restore that brand equity I once had. But I don't know if you can do that until you fix your team. All this being loyal to the people who got you there is great but they're holding him back from what it looks like. Not only that, but now they're getting frustrated because they want more of a say. So they're leaking information out about Joshua. When your camp gets leaky, it's time for a cabinet reshuffle, is how I look at it. A lot of those guys have lived off Joshua's name for a long time and they haven't even been able to parlay that into any real business interests. That's why they're still hanging on. Because they still need that name recognition to try and get stuff going. And in all of this, I hold two people accountable, one above the other. I hold Joshua accountable firstly. Secondly, I hold McCracken accountable for being the custodian of the camp. But, you know, as a result of these two not getting it right, they've taken millions off the value of any fight with Fury or Wilder, Right? And it was interesting that they were talking about fighting Wilder without the belts. Which shows you that this is it's a money-making exercise above all else. That's really what it is. And, you know, this week has kind of just reinforced that. Now, they've had to wheel out Eddie Hearn to tell us that Joshua's got this, the blueprint and the answer and Joshua's back in the gym. Not buying it. He's scared. I don't know what he's scared of. But... When you talk to people in boxing, they understand the idea of you get a lot of big men that are hollow, right? And they're guys who normally, and I've said this in previous episodes, if you've always been taller than everyone else, you don't really understand what it's like to, to take on Goliath. And Joshua's been bigger than everyone else from day one. 
So he's always been the big guy. And that's why he got arrested for beating up the little guy. But what do these guys do when someone's just as big as them? Or not even just as big, but big enough to be a threat. But they know what it's like to overcome the odds because they were fighting against a smaller guy. The big hollow guys can't live with that pace and that intensity. That's why Joshua gets found out. Because as much as they try and spin this story about a kid, Joshua's life wasn't that hard from what I was told. It wasn't. This isn't a guy that grew up in a crack den. This isn't a guy that was sharecropping. Let's be clear about this. This isn't a guy who had a daughter and said, I've got no other way to pay for this daughter apart from fighting. That's why he's different to Wilder. Nor is he a guy who grew up boxing, grew up fighting for family pride and all of that stuff there that we get told. So he hasn't got that legacy that Fury has. Joshua, it's manufactured everything. And when things are manufactured like that, they tend to be hollow. And expect him to avoid anyone of any substance because they will come after him. If the chin holds up, a prime Chisora would have been a nightmare for Joshua. Like, look at what he look what an old Chisora was able to do to Dillian. And I believe the current version of Dillian beats Joshua. Because Dillian's not hollow, right? You could shrink Dillian down to five foot ten. I don't think he'd fight any fewer people. He'd fight the same number of people. Because he's got the mindset. I think if you shrunk Joshua down to five foot ten, he'd doubt himself. He'd avoid all conflict. That's the difference. I think if you shrunk Usyk down to 5'10", he'd still fight. That's the difference between the men and the boys. And if this week has taught us anything else, it's... Joshua has to rediscover what it is to be the man in the division. Because there are a lot of guys who are willing to test that. And if he doesn't have the answers to them pretty soon, there will be no Joshua. There'll be no 89-person photograph anymore because people will leave him and go to the next big thing. That's why I hope Lawrence Ocoli just keeps, keeps the right people around him and trusts his training team. Because you don't need a big training team to be successful. Joshua did fantastic things with just McCracken and Tony Sims. Maybe he needs to go back to that. I'm an hour in, I hadn't planned to talk for that long. So one thing I want to say to anyone doing the London Marathon, good luck. Right? I'm seeing the weather outside, I'm like, thanks, but no thanks. So good luck to anyone doing that. If you're going up to Wembley Arena, good luck with that. If you've already been, let me know how it was. Um, anything else I need to touch on? Uh, probably not. So on that note, I will sign off and say, guys, have a great weekend. Bye. I'm a father, a loving father. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a semi-good husband. You know what I mean? What? You know what I mean? I'm just a man out here trying to enjoy my. I, I was born poor. I ain't never had nothing. Man. I don't know how to act. All right. But the real thing is, I'm just, I'm just here to be me. I don't care what uh, you, think you know what I am or who, or who anyone thinks I am, um, at this stage of my life. But um, yeah, I'm a pretty much of a tyrant titan. Yeah, that's who I am.